This is Looking Forward, conversations about the future of work. Brought to you by Miller Knoll. Hey everyone, today we talk with Ronan Giorno, Senior Managing Director and European Head of Management Services and Operation at Heinz. Ronan is a wonderfully strategic thinker about the role of real estate in our communities and how the future of real estate can positively impact organizations and their employees. Having been part of many key disruptions in corporate real estate, I think you'll enjoy Ronan's perspective on the changes that are currently underway across the world. And as a self-described, passionate, and purpose-driven student for life, Ronan wanted me to encourage each of you to connect with him on LinkedIn and share your feedback and thoughts about our topic today. So with that request in mind, enjoy this conversation with Ronan Giorno. Hey, Ronan. Thanks so much for joining the podcast. Maybe to start out, you could tell us a little bit about you and what you do at Heinz. Sure. No, happy to. So um, what am I? I? I'm a workplace and real estate practitioner. I, I've been in the industry for the last 28 years. Um, I spent my entire journey paying rent. Uh, I've been a tenant, uh, spent 21 years at Cisco running the real estate organization and being a tenant across many countries and many geographies, many different uh, cultures. Uh, then I left and joined WeWork and I worked with Adam Newman and his team to build the enterprise business of WeWork. Uh, spent three years there, um, saw the exponential growth and the big impact we've had on the industry. And then I joined Heinz uh, 18 months ago, and I hope that the listeners are aware of Heinz, but, but it, is a, it is a fascinating place. It's a family-owned, family-run business, 65 years in business, uh, Houston-based. And when you look at Heinz, what, what do we, in essence, do we do? We invest, we develop, we manage, and we operate prime real estate across the world and across all asset classes. Predominantly, we have been in offices. Now we cover all asset classes, uh, huge growth in the living sector, in logistics, um, in retail, and continuing to really shape and regenerate many cities across the world. So I would encourage the listeners to dig a little deeper and, and get familiar with the firm. When I joined the firm, what I've been asked to do is to really look at the operational business that we have successfully built over the past 40 years in the United States, over the past 20 plus years in Poland and Russia, in Mexico, and try and figure out together with our country leaders, how do we build this operational business here in Europe? How do we bridge between asset management, property management, and engineering excellence, and and really offer our investors, our customers, our tenants, uh, and the location, the highest quality of service and engagement and relationship that we could possibly offer. So the intent is not to compete with the big service providers out there. Uh, We're building this business unit purely for our own use to support the assets that we own in our various vehicles, and really just look to do that uh, at the highest quality possible. Look to align the ESG initiatives of the firm together with those of our tenants, our customers, um, and really just build much deeper relationships with the people who pay rent. So that's in very simple terms what's my mandate. Um, There's a lot more complexity behind it, but in a nutshell, that's that's the transformation that I've been asked to uh, to drive. 
That's fantastic. I know you've had a highly varied and interesting career. Let me ask you, uh, what about this work is so appealing to you? What motivates you and why have you chosen to dedicate your time to focus on this? Uh, it's a tough question. That's a good question. I guess when I reflect back on the last 20, 25 plus years, I would say 28 years, I, I've, I've been fortunate to be part of disruptions. Okay, If I think about my very first uh, job in London, I was part of the outsourcing disruption back in, you know, in the mid nineties when companies were looking at outsourcing. How can I package services and give them to a third party to perform them at a better price point and a better quality of service? My Cisco years were a different type of disruption. They were technological disruption. It was all about how does technology change society for the better? How does it change the way we work, the way we live, the way we play, the way we communicate? Um, and with that, there ha it had a huge impact on the workplace. It liberated the human from the desk with extension mobility. Shortly afterwards, we saw the safe wireless, which liberated us not only from the desk, but from the floor, from the building. We were able to move around the campus. And then we had... Uh, you know, different types of internet connectivity away from the dial-up into VPN, which again, enable us to work from outside the office. Um, and then telepresence came about, WebEx came about, and all of a sudden collaboration could be done and performed from pretty much anywhere you choose to. And, and what I learned in that disruption is that we enabled people to work anytime, anywhere, any place. And, and I was very fortunate to be part of that and to be able to contribute to that and learn from that time. Um, joining WeWork was a different disruption in its own right. It was about creating workplaces that were cool, sexy, places that people wanted to come to and congregate. It was about informality. It was about moving away from the old symbols of the workplace, the hierarchy and power, into making them much more human-centric. But at the same time, it had a different side to that disruption. It was all about driving efficiency and giving the occupiers flexibility. You know, an average flex operator operates at a high level of density, high level of flexibility that most corporate occupiers aspire to and need. So it was a different type of set of disruptions that we lived through. And being part of that machine that set new industry standards was just something I had to do. Now, Living WeWork and joining Heinz, the reason I, I was so delighted with this opportunity is because Heinz is already at the top of the game. It's, it's one of the top three most important firms in the world when it comes to investment and development and management operation of assets. Uh, if, you, if you dig into the history of the firm, you will see that they have shaped many, many landscape of cities across the United States, across Paris, London, Berlin. And what, what I really uh, appreciate about the opportunity is that they asked me to get us closer to the tenants. They asked me to build that intimacy with the people who pay rent and do that by building the operational business, something that I'm so fundamentally passionate about, the day-to-day -day tactical stuff that matters. Because if you get the restaurant right, if you get the toilets right, if you get the air conditioning right, and you get the hospitality mindset right, and the right set of amenities and technology enablement, you create an experience. And to be able to build such business within such a large, reputable, successful vehicle, it's once in a lifetime. And again, why? I just want to contribute to the transformation of the industry. I want to do my, my small piece. 
and, and I couldn't ask for a better vehicle with which to do it. Well, not only have you been part of such an interesting and series of impactful transformations, you're also quite cognizant of what's going on at a given time. As you move closer to tenants that you work with, given the significant reevaluation of workplace and urban centers, how do you think about the transformation that we're currently undergoing and where do you see all of this leading? Uh, it's an excellent question. So, so, so many different lenses to look at what's going on at the moment. If I look at it from the lens of a large occupier, nothing new, if we want to be absolutely brutally honest about it. The, the need for flexibility, the need for the workplace to be a tool, an enabler for attracting and retain, retaining talent, for the workplace to be the place where people congregate and feel a sense of belonging and a sense of alignment with the brand and the values for which we stand for is not new. That has been in existence and a big challenge for heads of real estates for the last 20 years. The need to drive efficiency and effectiveness in the way that space performs is not new. What has happened from the occupier's perspective is that COVID has accelerated these trends. COVID has made sure that this, this convergence between people, place, technology, and culture has become front and center of the agenda of every board, of every corporation on earth. It's no longer nice to have. It doesn't only belong to Google and Amazon and Facebook. This has become the front and center conversation in the boardroom of every company across every sector, which means that it has accelerated the need to get the formula right. Now, if you look at it from the occupier's perspective, what does it mean? It means that they are going to right-size their portfolios. They're going to retain only what they need. They're going to consume more flex. They're going to focus on the human experience within the space and the purpose of that place they call workplace. What is the purpose of the workplace we provide to our employees? And it's going to be much more intentional. It's, it's going to be much more human-centric. The dialogue between the employer and the employees is going to be much more wholesome than ever before. Why? Because the people want choice. People want to be trusted of how they perform work and where they perform work. And why? Because technology over the past three years has won. It has proven that work and businesses can continue to function for the vast majority of businesses across the planet, if you, especially if you're in the knowledge industry. Now, put that aside. That's the employee's, that's the occupier's perspective. If you look at it from an investor's perspective and a landlord perspective, what does this mean? It means that as occupiers who pay the rent are looking for more flexibility, investors have to build that into their underwriting. They have to build that into their modeling. They have to be cognizant that in an environment of offices, it's no longer going to be acceptable to commit for 20-year leases or 15-year leases. There will be a core strategic locations that people sign up and commit to. And over and above that, they will be looking for much more flexibility. The same thing applies to a manager and occupier landlord. They're going to have to think about placemaking. They're going to have to think about hotelification, how rich are the set of amenities I provide. And how do I make sure that everything we do is having a positive impact on the environment, but also on society and the neighborhood around us? ESG is becoming front and center for the investment side of the industry, for the landlords and de developers. As much as it has been, it will become more for the occupiers. So we are establishing a common agenda. So what does it all mean? It means that 
I'm finally seeing what I've been advocating for a while, which is the built environment is truly becoming human-centric and technology-enabled. And if we can put the human and the human experience at the center of every conversation and work inwards, out, and work from the center out and focus about the people who are going to use that built environment, whether it's a customer, whether it's employees, our partners, then we will provide very sustainable and very successful uh, locations and businesses. Hey friends, we'll get back to our episode in just a moment. But first, I want to take this opportunity to let you know that Looking Forward is part of Surround, a podcast network curated by Sandow Design Group. Surround brings together some of the best architecture and design-driven audio content available. So if you like what you hear from us, visit surroundpodcast.com and check out some of the other great shows on the network. That's a fascinating take. And much of what, in fact, most of what you said really resonates with me, particularly that so much of this was our reality before the pandemic, but it's been so highly accelerated. Whether it's on the investment side or on the occupier side, it feels like there's a major game of catching up happening in so many circles. I'm curious, with your global perspective and all that you've seen, are there things happening in the world of workplace, maybe in Europe? or somewhere where you've seen the most success for best practices that the rest of us and other parts of the world can learn from? From what I'm seeing and from a lot of dialogue with many occupiers, everyone is experimenting. Everyone is still somewhat in the kitchen trying to cook the right formula and someone deploying prototypes, piloting, and experimenting. And, and if we think about it over a long continuum, that's okay. That's fine. This is not bricks and mortar. It's not something you can set in concrete. It, you know, the convergence between human beings' needs, how they perform work, uh, what environment, what services enable them to perform work, be happy, be productive, uh, and feel that it's actually enhancing the physical and mental well-being, it's a very complex set of inputs and dynamics. The, the, the legacy of the industry is that we built, we designed, we built, and we provided very static, very fixed environments. And, and three years later, five years later, all the matrix were in the wrong direction, underutilized, uh, wrong menu of settings, ineffective, people don't like it, don't turn up. Uh, people's perception wasn't very consistent. They didn't, once they were proud of it, then they were not. So we, in, as an industry, have been providing safe, static, fairly uh, obsolete set of solutions. What many occupiers and many people in the service provision side of the industry are doing now is focusing on what is the data showing us? What are people telling us? And where have we been pre-COVID in terms of management practice, in terms of leadership values, in terms of behavior of our workforce, in terms of adoption of technology? Assess where you have been before, look at the data of before, listen attentively to your employees of today, engage them in a meaningful dialogue, and begin to extrapolate solutions that you are willing to test and fail with. That's what I'm seeing. And the reason I say that is because what we're seeing is a lot of contradictions. On one hand, we see CEOs of major banks and city mayors, I want you back in the office. I need you back in the office. It's important for you. Absolutely. The office has a fundamental role to play in the life of every organization. I fundamentally believe that. 
we need a place to congregate. As humans, we needed it for the last 600 years of our existence. If you go back to the coffee houses of Amsterdam and London, that's where business was made, right? Or if you go to the guilds, where do the professions go together? So I fundamentally believe we need that. But the contradiction is that if, you, if the CEO tells his employees, I need you back, and yet three years of business have produced excellent results, good profitability, good productivity, people are actually working overtime because they're spending 12 hours a day on Zoom, get burnt out. Uh, what the message, the way the message is being interpreted by many is you don't trust me. You're not giving me choice. You want to control me. And that is causing a lot of disconnects. And we've heard about the great resignation. We've heard about the exodus from the big cities in the United States, in particular in California, in London. And I think that we're going through a correction period where employees are saying, I really just want you to trust me. And I want you to give me the space to manage my time to produce work. And I want you to manage my output and the way I collaborate. Don't manage me by presentism. That is a social transformation we're going through at the global level. Is your sense that in this piloting and prototyping that organizations are being participative and are actually including the voice of their employees? Or is that something that most organizations still need to do a better job of doing? Well, if we look at Lisman, who Tim Oldman, I think he has now reached over a million data points. And if you listen to Despina, my good friend, Despina Katsikakis at Cushman, she shared a presentation recently with my team where they have gathered 6 million data points of how people experience working from home versus returning to the office. And if you, if you look at it, they, and those are both documents that are being published in the public domain, so people can follow Lisman and Despina and, and find those papers. What it indicates and illustrate is that employers are very focused on trying to understand what the employees want and what the employees perceive as fair and what uh, the employees have experienced during this crisis. It has not been easy for everyone. Many people have suffered, in particular the very young generation who needs the mentorship, the pupillage, the proximity. But at the same time, through this dialogue, many employers are recognizing that today they're facing four distinct generations in their workforce. I think that uh, January was the cutoff point where we have broken 52% of all people in the Western world, knowledge workers, are, over the, are under the age of 30. So we are indeed dealing with four generations who all experience the crisis in different ways and all have different needs in order to integrate work and life into one, one now that we are getting into some new degree of normality. And employ employers are, are listening, are engaging, and I think the astute ones, from what I'm observing, are also recognizing there is no fixed solution. They're calling it hybrid, but what does it mean in hybrid? The spectrum of choice and flexibility is huge. But we're also seeing organizations being taking extremes of the spectrum. Some are saying, you can work anywhere in the planet as long as you produce the output. We've seen some who say, you can work anywhere in the United States as long as I can localize your salary, right? So we have seen different approaches. I think across Europe, it's far more complex. Labor laws are very complex. Tax law is very complex. We have unions, we have works councils. 
So I think that the degree of uh, fluidity across the European countries is is somewhat uh, you know m- more tricky. But employers are are open, taking the blinders down. They're saying the most fundamental is the experience of my people, the engagement of my people, and being able to attract new talent and retaining the talent I have. And for me, that's super encouraging. Back to human centricity. We're not talking about process. We're not talking about profits. We're starting with the most important part of the economy of every country, which is the human being at the center. That's encouraging. Well, one of the effects of all this that we've observed in organizations um, is that so many people are taking a fresh look at the types of spaces that they're using. And there's an interesting dynamic that we've seen uh, a really strong desire for premium buildings, you know, class A, A plus trophy assets in many parts of the world. But there's also, I think, a major focus these days on reducing the environmental impacts of creating new buildings and doing more with the buildings we've got. So my question is, what are your thoughts on how an occupier can make the most of a building that already exists? So, so great question. Um, I would say that the starting point is actually gathering data, not just assuming. And, and gathering data to establish what is the true environmental impact that that building, fully operational, is having. How much waste are you producing? How much power are you consuming? How much cooling are you consuming? How much retrofitting are you having to do? Uh, how much does it cause uh, people to use cars to, try, you know, to, to actually arrive at the locations? So really take a snapshot that is real, away from perception, and then take a hard look at utilization. Because even if you have a, a LEED or a BREEAM certified building at the highest level, if the building is only being utilized for 30% of the time, that's not good, right? It needs to be efficient and effective. It needs to be heavily utilized. Otherwise, you are sitting on a large carbon footprint that can be avoided. So I think a starting point is data. I think the second step I would take if I was sitting today in the occupier shoes is talk to my landlord. Establish a very consistent, regular relationship and dialogue with the organization that owns my building. Who is my investor? Who's my landlord? Who's the operator? Because again, they control probably 20% of the plant and the footprint. You control the rest. If you really want to have a positive impact, do it together. Share your data with the landlord and ask the landlord to share their data with you and establish a structure to make things happen. Align your initiatives with the landlord's initiative. This is quite difficult for many occupiers to hear. It's equally difficult for landlords to hear. That's why I jumped to this side of the industry to try and contribute to change. But I can tell you that the goodwill from the investor and landlord side is huge, is huge. The recognition that we need to do it together is absolutely massive. So I would say that's a starting point. I think the next step is if you have to make changes to a building, start with the question of, how can we make it better? How can we regenerate it, retrofit it in a caring, sustainable way? Uh, how can we reuse material? Uh, and what's the expected outcome of this exercise? And, and I think that we're going to see more and more projects across Europe that are focusing on repurposing, that are going to f- focus on before I demolish, before I relocate, if the location is right, Can I repurpose all? Can I repurpose partial amount of space? And the same thing applies to even tactical retrofit of an environment of any office building. 
before you throw away all the furniture and recycle everything, ask yourself a tough question. What's, what am I missing? Why is it not performing what I needed to perform? And if so, how can I do it better? Yeah, that makes a ton of sense to me, particularly given what we were describing earlier as work and workers change so quickly, seeing some of those key metrics, even if they're strong in the beginning, there may be disconnects later on. So this idea of a space that truly evolves, whether it's the building itself or more likely just the interior of it, I think it's a wonderful aspiration. And that partnership you described between landlord and occupier, that sounds like a really great goal. I am curious, though, on the data side, and I don't get a chance to talk with organizations quite as much about this particular topic as I used to, but it felt like for years, organization had more and more dashboards, you know, lots of different independent data sets related to their building performance, particularly relative to utilization. But sometimes these same organizations struggled with creating an overall cohesive picture of what that data actually means. Do you think that's still the state of things or have organizations gotten better at using what data they've got and integrating it and knowing how to interpret it and make decisions based upon it? I think we've come a long way. Um, you know, I, I left Cisco in 2017. And at that time, we had a pretty solid handle of how we use space across the world. Um, what was the performance of the plants in our buildings across the world? What was the efficiency that we planned for those buildings and what worked and what didn't work. Uh, it was a variety of sensors, a variety of surveys, a variety of different methods to observe human behavior in the physical environment. And that is five years ago. I am observing in the industry today a um, huge amount of innovation in PropTech. There are many players who have developed solutions that are a lot less intrusive, uh, much more compliant with privacy much more compliant with GDPR and with InfoSec uh, policies of companies uh, that you can literally plug and play. And they enable you to understand, again, how efficient or effective is the space and the services and what is the experience all about. And in real time, you can gauge if the combination between the physical space the way that services are provided and the human interaction with those two elements is working or not. So you can actually visualize success or failure. Now, what's holding us back from doing it at a global scale and, and really being very successful with that, I think a degree of courage um, from all parties to go there and overcoming the fragmentation that is so inherent in the industry. So if you're an occupier, you can control your demise space but then you need to get aligned internally. You need to ensure that your HR team and your IT team and your legal and infosec, uh, physical security are all aligned with what you're measuring and why and how. Now, that's within your demise. Take it into the entire placemaking, into the destination. You need that data to be aligned with that of your operator, your landlord, and your neighbors. And, and that takes a leap of faith. That takes courage. That takes dialogue. But there are many examples around the world where this is now being implemented successfully and it's producing valuable insights uh, which help people drive better decisions. And I think one of the areas in particular is retail, places where we have seen regeneration of high street retail where the landlords and the occupiers and the operators partnered to look at food traffic 
to understand the mix of units and the mix of products and the narrative that they create for a particular location produce positive business outcomes, which means more footfall with people who are willing to spend time in those locations and spend and enjoy themselves. So there are examples where this is being put, but it takes, as I said, it takes courage, it takes dialogue, and and it takes a, a willingness to break some silos that exist. Yeah, you know, it's almost like you're painting a picture of what being a good neighbor and a good citizen looks like. Absolutely. Essentially, as an occupier working with others, working with your landlord to really seek out far better spaces in a much more holistic way than maybe we've thought about in the past. And although I could probably talk to you for another several hours, I do have one last question for you. If you had a friend who jumped into the role of leading a corporate real estate team for a large occupier and they sat down with you and said, Ronan, what should my priorities be? How should I start? What kind of a roadmap should I lay out? How would you counsel them? Ah, <laughs> oh, it's a fantastic question. I, I actually had a, a session with uh, a newly appointed regional head of real estate who asked me exactly the same question. I'll share what I learned the hard way, okay? H- having spent, as I said, 21 years at Cisco, um, in the last uh, five plus years, I, I, I was invited to sit at uh, eight different boards of the, of the company. So country leadership boards. And what I learned the hard way by growing up in a company and doing many different roles, making a lot of mistakes, but learning from them, is that real estate is the second largest expense on the PL of most organizations after salaries. And the most fundamental part of the role of the leader is to recognize that and to understand how that spend is managed and and reassure the stakeholders that it is optimized, it is managed well. But at the same time, recognize that their role is to serve the business. Their role is to serve the revenue-generating part of the business. Their role is to be the custodian of culture. Their role is to enable the business to go and perform and grow as it needs to. Their role is to support the workforce plan. A business strategy is always supported by a workforce plan. That workforce plan illustrates what skills, what capabilities, what people I need and where. The real estate team and their the leader, their role is to serve that, is to align to that as much as they can and recognize that real estate can be very static Workforce plan and business plans are very fluid. How do I arbitrate between that static and fluid uh, characteristics? And never lose track of the fact that despite controlling a very large budget and a very tangible set of services, you cannot achieve the value add to your business if you do it in a silo. You must be exceptional collaborator. You must reach out to every cross-functional leader and work as one. That starts with human resources. That goes to legal, technology, finance, IT, procurement, and the list goes on. So those will be just my learnings. You have to be an excellent collaborator. You are there to provide a service. You're there to enable, and you are carrying a huge responsibility of a very substantial cost base. The last thing, if it's done well, you can also help to shift the conversation that real estate in any large organization is a fantastic tool to enable people to congregate, have a sense of belonging, have fantastic experience, and and really 
create that community, both social and business, that produces success. Well, what a fantastic way to end our conversation, Ronan. Thank you so much for spending time with me and our listeners today. I really appreciate it. Anytime. It's an absolute honor and pleasure to be here. And thank you so much for uh, for this opportunity.